0: One thing that did happen, which we should illuminate on the podcast, was I was sitting outside checking my email and someone said, oh my God, a celebrity. So that, and, and he smiled, and he smiled and said, it's really you. And I said, I don't know what you're talking
1: about. You should have signed his forehead with a Sharpie. You don't keep a Sharpie in your pocket for all the celebrity uh, engagements he, you do? He now? looked
0: at me and I just said, brought to you by TechGC. GC." <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're brought to you by Tech-GC. Yeah. <laughs> that's gonna be we, my new greeting i was gonna everyone. say
0: we just missed a huge opportunity at that conference so the next one the next one everyone we meet after the conversation brought to you by tech gc that's right
1: that's right hey man it's yeah. good seeing you again john i really like what you're doing at your new place take care <laughs> brought to you by tech gc <laughs> So we got to use that weird uh, voice, We man. should, yeah. Speaking of Tech GC, like, isn't there a conference this week? Yeah, end
0: of the week, uh, another conference that they do, which is awesome. This one is in San Francisco, but they do a bunch of these things. Um, obviously, we're- It's cool that all of this stuff know.
1: is happening in person.
0: Yeah. They're doing both, in-person hybrid also.
1: First of all, I love the idea of choice because it empowers lots of people to participate in things they couldn't if they had to travel, particularly if their companies don't have the budget. So, love that. and. Um, Second of all, I think it's cool that people are seeing each other, man. I I, I did. I miss human contact, man. I really did. And I didn't realize how much I was lacking it till we sort of like got it together here and started seeing each other again.
0: It was really great. We had a, a session, a roundtable the day before with uh, a bunch of our you know, colleagues and friends and new ones that came to and joined that. It was really great to see everybody and get the ideas on the table and get back to kind of like trying to solve problems together. It was awesome.
1: Yeah, it was good times, man. Well, we got a super special guest today, um, my colleague and friend, Andrew uh, Howard, who I work with at Meta. And, um, you know, when I was interviewing for my job, uh, for for my job here at at Meta, um, it's funny how I say here, but I'm in my basement. Anyway, Mm -hmm. for my job (laughs) at Meta, um, you know, I knew Andrew and I would be working closely together um, and his name came up in a bunch of discussions I had with different folks. And so towards the end of my interview process, I was like, well, listen, I got to go meet Andrew. Like, it sounds like we're going to do a lot together and I want to make sure like, you know, we gel and we vibe. And I remember I was in Key West or no, I was in Isla Morata Key to my girlfriend, and my dog, who is insane right now under my desk here. Um, and uh, I took a, I, I, I took a call with Andrew and I was like, literally just like walking down the beach. So it's like, Weirdly, like a romantic setting, and um, and we met for the first time on a call. And dude, I was so impressed by it with like how smart he is, and and just sort of his demeanor is so calm. Andy, like he's very steady, um, but like he rumbles the room with his thoughts. Like he's really sharp, and um, he's got a, a team here at at Meta that is like, when I tell you bright stars, man, there's there's a couple people on his team that are like luminary level thinkers when it comes to to our profession and to the work we do and uh you know he he undertakes every day the difficult task of of enabling people who are sort of like moonshotters every day like that's hard man and i watch him do it with a pretty steady hand and i've learned a lot from him being able to work closely closely with him and we've been talking about getting him on the podcast since since i joined the company and finally we're able to make this happen so i'm super excited man
0: i love his uh his take on enabling others enabling the team around him yeah. it's uh it takes a special kind of leader yeah. to to like dive headfirst into filling the gaps uh, on the team with you know people that are really really good at what they do and you know totally totally um awesome person and and uh excited he's to hear what he has to say
1: he's got Phil Jackson energy like yeah. you know, like I was got just speaking that energy. Yeah, like Phil Jackson energy. For those of y'all who don't know who Phil Jackson is, he's the legendary former head coach of the Chicago Bulls who had to coach Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rahman. And then he went to the Lakers and had to coach Kobe and Shaq and coached all those guys into high-performing championship teams um, and had an illustrious career. Like, Andrew's kind of like that. He's got, like, a bench of Kobe's and Jordans, and and he just lets them do their Kobe and Jordanship, gives them enough structure, enough sort of, like, uh, guidance. It's a huge
0: compliment. Optimize, I mean, yeah. I'm going to plug 12 Rings again, which is Phil Jackson's <laughs> book. It's so good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Big Phil. All right. Should, anyway, all right. Let's get Andrew on here. Let's do the thing and uh, let's go for it.
0: There we go. Uh, here
1: we are. We are here. Welcome, Andrew. How's it going? It's going well. How are you guys? I'm doing well. You're doing well. Um, we got a lot to talk about, and um, Andy, uh, I feel like we haven't recorded an episode in weeks, so I bet you we're a little rusty, but we'll get through this. We'll it's not going to be too bad. <laughs> um, but I get the privilege, and I'm lucky enough to work with Andrew every day, so I, I know him really well. And uh, when Andy, when you and I were talking pre-production this season, I was like, we got to get Andrew on. And he's one of the most interesting people I know in the ad tech business, knows it in and out. I, I, I know very few people who can talk about stack, not just meta stack, but just a stack at large, the programmatic stack more broadly um, for ads than Andrew. And he's been in the trenches a long time. But before we get into all that cool ad tech privacy stuff, Andrew, I got to ask you a question that I've actually never asked you. And I'm just, I was looking through your bio today. I was like, how the hell have we never talked about this? You have a bachelor's degree in geography. I do. Please, please explain. <laughs> Elaborate.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's a good question. And I think it actually explained it, it's a, because, you know, ahead of this, ahead of the episode here, I was thinking about sort of what led me to this point in my career. And I actually think it all kind of starts with geography. So I went to undergrad at Middlebury College in Vermont, um, you know, rolled out there from the West Coast after high school, really didn't have any set ideas to what I wanted to study. I mean, I don't think most people do when they start undergrad. And I, you know, assumed it may be English or history or something like that, because I've always enjoyed that kind of stuff. But then I stumbled across geography. And what really intrigued me about geography is it's like the ultimate sort of mix of different disciplines, right? The whole thing is intersection. It's economics intersected with history, intersected with sociology. It's, you know, both physical geography, right? Which is like, you know, surveying and map making plus human geography, why people move certain places and when and what what about, you know, sense of place and that sort of thing. And it just really captured me. And I dove headfirst into it pretty early in college and really sort of, uh, you know, went head over heels for it. Um, and And I think, you know, getting to do everything from actually making physical maps, right, and working on like large nice. format map making and that sort of thing. And GIS, geographic information systems, all that stuff, but, but also, um, you know, just looking at sort of the more human side of it too. Um, it was fascinating. And, and I think, you know, ultimately that sort of mix of disciplines and mix of sort of threads is, is what led me to, you know, sort of where I am today in my career in and in a roundabout kind of way.
1: So it's like, man, I got to tell you, like when I think about studying geography, I think about that <laughs> Like the teacher would come in when I was in like fifth grade with like a map of the United States and be like, you fill in as many state names as you can, you know, and if you get, you know, 70% of them or more, you pass or whatever kind of thing. But it sounds yeah. like, like geography is like, obviously when you study this in college, it's going to be more sophisticated, but more importantly, like there's like a cartographic component to it. Like I didn't realize like the map making and not just the making of like drawing a map, but like all of the like humanity that goes into the idea of map making just seems in- hearing you talk about it just sounds intriguing sounds interesting as shit too. it
2: is it's, it's also it's also the encoding of power too right like the drawing exactly that's what i mean exactly is a is an exercise in in sort of you know claiming or sort of articulating power um and also the study of people we did a really fascinating project once about the sort of process of people's the mental maps they if you ask people to draw maps of things the way that they draw those maps, like their town, their neighborhood, whatever it might be, the way they how they draw that, the what what it reveals about them as people, and sort of what it reveals about their you know their biases, their uh, you know their beliefs. It's super fascinating. Um, it was also really humbling too, because we had this legendary professor Bob Churchill um, who taught a lot of the actual cartography and GIS stuff, and he was um, you know a hard ass in the best possible way. Um, and we would have every Friday morning in his classes. We'd have a critique where you bring your map you made that week. It goes up on the screen, and you have the conversation, uh, you know, about sort of the, the what, whether, how the assignment went, and, and sort of the evaluation. And we would all just get reamed up there, right? He would. He was ruthless. But um, learning to get that kind of feedback and take it, and then use it to make yourself better. I mean, that is a lesson that I've carried. Every single day since, Um, you know,
1: it's this is Andy's. This is Andrew's software, Andy, of saying that I'm a dickhead in meetings. (laughs) (laughs) His cartography, his cartography (laughs) professor prepared him for the. That's right. It was all in. I have a a question about
0: I have a question, Andrew, about the professor. What did you think was his like uh, logic for doing that? What did he want to get out of the students? Because it sounds like somebody that has a plan, you know, a bigger plan for what they're trying to get.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, he, Bob was, he actually passed away my senior year um, of college. Oh, uh, of he stuff. was a mentor and, and, uh he, and, and he, he had a brief and, and with pancreatic cancer and passed away. Um, and, you know, we, we <laughs> there was a lot of a, a reflection and introspection back on that exact question, Andy. Right. I remember at the end of college and, the, the belief was his belief was that we were all way more capable than we realized of achieving amazing things. And he just wanted to push us to get us to that point. Um, and, you know, I think he, his belief in our own abilities and our own uh, sort of way of being able to do things was far surpassed uh, our, our own. So he, it was his role to push us to that level um, and, and realize what lies beyond that threshold. So again, talk about lessons that carry forward in life. Um, yeah. You know, just what what exists right past the edge of, of what you think is maybe too hard or not possible, um, and getting you know how to get to that point.
0: How do uh, you like put that, that? Like, how do you like put that into you both of these For both of you, how do you like give that back to your teams now?
2: For me, it, it's a lot about sort of. It's a lot about sort of balancing autonomy with support. Um, so being able to. Uh, you know, give my teams the room that they need to do really great work and to feel like they've got a lot of ownership and, and agency over what they're working on. But then having having their back, uh, no matter what, right? Having being there to uh, support them or provide air cover whenever they might need it. I think like that that balance and striking that balance is actually sort of at the core of what you know Bob Churchill did for all of us is is, is you know you know supporting, teaching, coaching, but then you know, giving folks the room to go, um, you know, go off and do amazing things and, and and giving them the belief that they can make that happen for themselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, watching Andrew Manage is a really cool th- phenomenon and part of my job because that's ex- the way you describe your management style is, is exactly right. Like you're a service-oriented leader, um, always looking for ways to enable and facilitate people on your team so that they can do their job. But you don't get, you know, we say something like this in a previous job, which is like, you know, you can tell people to put their boots on and it's part of the uniform, but you probably shouldn't tell them how to tie their laces, you know? Um, And so like there's a there's like an approach to like being present and being a manager, but not going so far as to like um, kill agency and kill creativity and stifle people's ability to give you feedback about maybe ways that they could do their own jobs better. And so. Striking that balance, in my opinion, is more art than science. It's hard to measure, like performance-wise. As a manager, I don't know how to measure that. In another manager, other than in the results and feedback from their you know, the people they manage. And so, um, I've learned a lot from you in in that regard. It's just as far as being as service-oriented as you can, while providing meaningful feedback, making hard decisions when you have to, um, and giving tough feedback sometimes, which is all part of the gig. I've learned a um, lot
0: from being a parent. It's it's not it's not like you don't man- manage a team like you do your kids but like the, just as you said pedro that like let me help you but i cannot i can't do it all for you you, you reach certain age thresholds and like you're detracting from them by tying their shoes exactly they need to learn yeah. how to tie their shoes and and obviously we're talking about different things with grown-ups and in in their yeah. jobs but like putting them in positions to succeed and kind of like i had bosses that wouldn't bring me in the room that would, yeah. you know, take the information and then go into the room. They might give you credit for it or they might not. But still, that next step is, no, they're in the room. We're, they're, they're having the conversation with everybody. Yeah. So it's good stuff.
1: Yeah. Do you know, it's talking about tying shoes and boots, I very clearly remember the day I learned how to tie my shoes. Do you guys remember that day? I very vividly no. remember it. <laughs> I don't know why either. I was there with my mom. I lived on a farm when I was a little kid. We're on the farm and my shoes were always a mess. And my mom got frustrated because she had to keep tying my shoes. And she said, you're going to learn right now. And I can't repeat it because it was in Spanish and I sound like a goofball. But she sang this little song about a rabbit while she tied my shoe. And to this day, I'm 41 years old. When I tie my boots or I tie like a really, (laughs) like I sing this stupid ass song to myself. I'm singing the song. And like, yo, shout out to my mom for making a number one hit in my brain. <laughs> because, like, that's, like, you know, if I had to sing a song to save my life and I couldn't get a word wrong, it'd probably be that. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you guys. Like, there's a teaching component, but there's also, which is like, learn how to tie your shoes. But the, the other, especially when you're dealing with the caliber of people that we deal with in the privacy world, like, let me bring this towards privacy. Like, people who do the work that we do, whether it's lawyers or policy folks or comms folks, um, or, uh, you know, everybody in between engineering at the companies we work at, these are the top brains from their schools, from their communities, from, you know, from their perspective worlds, teaching the really smart people in my experience is really hard. Um, it's, it's really hard. And just knowing how to balance, especially as a manager, when you want to teach and pass on wisdom or knowledge or experience I find it to be trickier with like super high performing people than with people that need a lot more development. Um, interested in you guys' reactions to that?
2: I think that's. I, th- I think I've experienced the same, and I, I agree. And I'm going to bring it back to to Bob Churchill for just a second because I think there's another parallel here, which is a lot of the assignments he gave, right? A lot of the directions he gave were purposefully vague, right? Or or purposefully sort of incomplete, um, because again, the idea was to force us to go learn some new technique or new technology or go discover it on our own uh, in other words. And I think that that is, you know, back to the realm of privacy, right? And then the issues we deal with in privacy, so much of what we work on day to day also has sort of an incomplete playbook or an incomplete rule book. We're making a lot of this as we go. We're setting a lot of precedent. Um, We're doing a lot of things for the first time as we grapple with, all sorts of new and interesting kinds of data use. So I, I think there's a another parallel there. And I think, again, Pedro, to your point, it, it just underscores the importance of, of balancing support, but also pushing folks to be ambitious and, and sort of lean into that, that edge that we all exist on trying to do our jobs every day.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I really I want to dive into at. Go ahead, Andy. Go ahead.
0: I was just going to say quickly, Pedro. I think it's it's like tricky to think when you have smart people around you, and you want to enable their really good ideas. Um, sometimes people are full of ideas, and they're really really smart, but they they haven't um, thought about the best way to communicate them, or the best way to deliver them, or like thought three steps down the road. So that can be a place where sometimes I feel like I can help them if I have or the, or vice versa. Um, I do feel like you can help people that, um, have a lot of ideas and and they're really, really smart and, uh, need like just another set of ears or eyes on execution.
1: I think that's right, man. Um, net net here is like leading smart people is rewarding, but it's hard as shit. Um, uh, and, uh. Yeah. So it's one of the great challenges of my career. It's just like figuring out how to like maximize people's uh, potential and and give them interesting things to work on that is going to get the coolest work product. It's just hard, Um, but it's a fun it's a fun it's a fun thing. It's a fun thing to undertake. Um, I really want to get into Andrew's brain on ads shit um, because it's a it's full of interesting stuff. But before we do that, I've got one more sort of like history or Andrew's career history question, which is you spent a lot of years at Microsoft and you were in comps and you were there during the, uh, the bomber era, if I, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Steve, the Steve bomber. What the hell is that like? <laughs>
2: so it was, it was, it was really, it was a really rewarding and informative time for me in my career. Cause I got to work with truly amazing people. Right. So I was in, a group that was then called Trustworthy Computing, which was privacy, cybersecurity, like reliability, all that kind of stuff bound into one. And this digit. is before a
1: lot of this stuff was cute, right? Like now it's like the, the everybody very much wants so. To do this, this was this this is the era. Remember, guy, like
2: yeah. the internet worm viruses, like Zotob and Blaster. Like, <laughs> and do you remember huge...
1: Blaster and Zotob? <laughs> <laughs> like it was yesterday. We had we had
2: pagers. We had we had like an incident. You had a pager. Hold on.
1: We had pagers. It was it
2: was awesome. Um, and and I got to work (laughs) on, on on sort of public affairs and comms. Um, with some great people. So Peter Cullen, Brendan Lynch on the privacy side. You know, really amazing folks in our industry who have have you know incredible perspective and have done really really amazing things. And you know, getting to at that point work closely with them and work to tell the story of, of, you know, privacy, especially so early in its sort of, uh, development, um, yeah. was really rewarding getting to travel with them and, and, you know, have, have conversations with stakeholders and press and others to, um, kind of dig into some of these issues in some cases for the first time. Uh, it it was awesome. And, and I think that the, uh, it it was it was a you know it's one of those inflection point moments within a company and i think that it was it was the er, sort of the earlier days of sort of that shift from a pure focus on cybersecurity more toward data privacy as well as as a business and and societal and policy consideration and 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 getting to be part of that was 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 awesome and largely again because of the i mean couldn't couldn't have hoped for a better group of colleagues uh, to work with on that stuff and and, you know, Microsoft also then and now is a you know great place to work and a really sort of principles, mission driven company and, and has deep roots in the Pacific Northwest where I'm, I'm from and was working at that point. And it was, you know, it was a it was a real dream uh, for me to, you know, Seattle kid uh, getting to to work at Microsoft was 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 awesome.
1: I'm a big I've like Microsoft is one of those brands and companies that my whole life has been prestigious, like I like well, like. I'd say they're going through a renaissance now where their prestige is actually like sort of going beyond where it was in the 90s but dude I waited in line for Windows 95 like I waited in a line for Windows 98 like it was an album drop I I, I remember this Windows NT was my favorite I was like a nerd when I was a kid so I loved these fucking things um, and I just thought Microsoft was and sort of still is this just like impenetrable brand of just like Excellent. i don't know andy what's your perception of microsoft
0: they're amazing i mean they keep reinventing themselves that's yeah, the coolest exactly. that's the coolest thing right there aren't that many brands that you can say like went through incredibly high growth where what was it like executive assistants made a million dollars or whatever like yeah. incredibly rapid growth and then uh, uh a period of of like a lot of market a lot of people coming into the market and challenging them and then another period of intense rapid growth. Like, that's that's just very rare.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and, and, and watching what do, my, what my... Go ahead, Andrew. Go ahead.
2: No, they say also just the, the breadth in lines of business too, right? Everything from, you know, yeah. consumer when I was there, like boxed software, like like going to buy a Microsoft yeah. Office at Costco, right? Like box software um, to... You know, nascent, you know, Azure sort of fired up as I was, as I was leaving, you know, nascent cloud stuff, uh, you know, SharePoint project, you know, like some of these, you know, nooks and crannies of the business, right? I mean, there's, there's very few similar, similar companies in our industry that have that sort of bench strength, right? In terms of, of the ways in which they, they make money and the services they offer across consumer enterprise, everything in between. That was, I think you can only think of a couple. Privacy questions were diverse too.
0: I think you can only think of a couple, Andrew, that are comparable, like, like uh, AWS and and Amazon, you know, or, or Google or, um, or Apple. But I, I mean, that's almost it that have done that many Salesforce, maybe that have done that many different things and continue to reinvent and succeed it's crazy we haven't impressive.
1: even said like xbox you know what i mean like no, like Microsoft. this is also like, 10, like years, LinkedIn. 10 plus years ago too like you, you know apple. what i mean like like microsoft yeah. is you know I, I hear what you're saying andy and i think like probably the closest company to like microsoft's ability to transform itself to me is probably apple like you know like apple is like they went from, like, personal computer, you know, whatever, to the phone. Um, And they're sort of still in a phone era. However, they're transitioning to a services company. They're a media company. They're doing all this shit, like iTunes. And when iTunes saw the end of the line, they transitioned to Apple Music. And, like, they, they, they've really been able to survive. Microsoft does the same thing. An example is, like, a mulligan, like, um, what's it called? Skype. Like, they buy Skype and sort of it dies but not really it emerges from the ashes as like a phoenix as like teams right <laughs> and everything they learned from skype is now teams which is a robust like enterprise messaging shit i mean yeah. i think we support it on the portal now andy like i mean just teams has just come so so far so fast right in a super competitive market where you have other solutions like slack which is you know obviously and Facebook has its own solution. All these, There's all this competition, and they still went in there and, and took a big chunk of the business. And, and lastly, I'll say, when you look at the Office suite, I mean, what Google has done with Google Docs and Google Drive, I think is a miracle, and I'm a big fan. But how Microsoft has transformed their enterprise software to do all of this stuff is also amazing. Um, And just with like a super hyper focus on two things, I think, like, I don't know what Microsoft jargon is, but it's like trust, security and privacy. I guess it's three things. But like you sort of just have this innate trust for Microsoft products. I do. And it's probably misplaced, but I have it. And I'm sure millions of people have it. Yeah.
0: They hired they hired um, Julie Brill. Yeah. Well, there's, there's that like <clears throat> the proofs in the pudding. Yep. Like you hire a serious person yep. to run a serious privacy program and and you get serious results.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a that's a good point. Julie's great by the way. Um and and is rocking it out there. But okay, Microsoft big blue shout out to them and and all the cool shit. I read something yesterday that like Azure is on like a tear against mm-hmm. AWS right now. Um and just ripping. Um which is cool. Anyway, all right. Let's talk a little bit about ads stuff. So you've been at Meta. You're, how long have you been at Meta? Nine years. Uh, a little over eight, eight or nine. Eight. eight. So eight years. What percent? So we have this metric inside the company, Andy, um, where like you can go to our like internal people page. It's kind of like an internal Facebook, and it'll tell you you've been here longer than X amount of percent of people, right? Like you're ten years longer. Mine is already above sixty-seven percent. I've been here two years, a little under two years. Andrew, you must be 99.9%. I'm
2: hovering around 90, 98, I think, is somewhere okay. some, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, it's it's up there.
1: <laughs> a- Andrew's been here longer than 98% of the people who work here, Andy. That's an insane statistic to me. Yeah. An, yeah. yeah. And you've done all the things. You were here. What was your... So your first... I, I don't know. Was, was Cambridge Analytical the first big, huge bump or was there something before
2: I mean, that was probably, so, yeah, I mean, I joined in 2014. Um, So, you know, er early days um, was was pretty, um, you know, by by today's standards, certainly um, fewer issues and fewer sort of higher profile, um, you know, us being in sort of a higher profile position in a lot of these conversations. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. as time wore on, 2016 onward, um, you know, we saw the landscape shift a bit, definitely.
1: Yeah. Seems
0: like there was a focus on M&A at that time like so when I joined Data Zoo that tech company we were we were buying inventory from FBX and then all of a sudden there was M&A not just at Facebook but M&A happening in the space in general and now it seems like for a variety of policy reasons it's harder for certain companies to make purchases now
1: yeah, I mean, look, the comp- I, I'm not a competition lawyer, but like the competition scrutiny is through the roof against all tech right now, right? Like, you know, we're all in the, yeah, I don't want to use the word crosshairs, but we're all the 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 light is being shined, and folks are looking at these transactions really closely. and I think rightfully so. Whatever, man, like it makes sense. Too much consolidation in any industry is not a good thing, and there's plenty of evidence to prove that. All that being said, uh, I, you know, I think some consolidation makes sense, and um, and some companies can do better for consumers by joining forces. And there's a long history of that too. I mean, look at, look at what Salesforce and Slack are doing right now. Nobody would argue that that's bad for business. I mean, well, maybe I guess somebody could argue that, but like just looking at it from a like results perspective, I think it's an amazing acquisition and, it, and I'm watching both brands be able to serve their customers better. What? So it competition stuff is tricky, man. What percentage
0: of the privacy policy issues that you both face, I guess, I was. Sorry, let me rephrase that. What, Rough percentage of the policy issues are privacy focused versus some other set of facts.
1: You mean our team or the company? Ah,
0: uh, well, I mean you have two teams, like two policy teams, right on, at the company. Um, maybe I don't know. Maybe yours and yeah. Well, our team, one hundred percent, right? Well, if 90%. you have a thought on the rest, I mean, I don't know. I would but.
1: Say, I would say like ninety percent of our work is around privacy issues, but like you know andrew's team and his job is sort of like expanding it is actually the tip of the spear of the expansion of what we understand to be a privacy related question right like where does fairness fit in in all in in a privacy dialogue andrew's team is responsible for that and increasingly uh is seeing a lot of work there i don't know andrew what do you, what would you say like do you are you watching are you are you seeing privacy be the driver of a lot of our work over time being that you've been here so long or is it sort of like diminishing as a let me say it let me say it a different way is the pie of issues where maybe seven of the slices were privacy seven or eight years ago for a team like ours is it just growing and it's still seven but the slices are bigger and the eighth slice which is not privacy related it's just more stuff or are other things eating away at eating away take like just pulling harder than privacy is and focusing our energy in that direction like what what do you see happening it's a really good
2: question. I, I think
1: looking I asked it really thinking, badly.
2: Thinking thinking back to uh <laughs> thinking thinking back to 2014, 2015, right? You know, start of my my time at Meta, um you know, privacy was certainly if not one of the animating concerns, right? And I, and I think a lot of people at that point too were especially focused on privacy in terms of like what is the the privacy of the information I share, you know, and, and the settings and controls and that sort of thing. And then I think over time, a lot of that has evolved into privacy through the lens of, you know, how data is used to personalize somebody's experience um, across the service. And what I think has happened now is I still think privacy is an animating concern, but I also think it's become really a, a sort of a crucible in which a bunch of other issues now intersect. Um, so whether that's fairness, civil rights, competition, the list goes on, so I think people have now sort of both a wider awareness of, of probably data-related issues that that come together, but also a vocabulary to bring a lot of those together under different umbrellas. And I think that even if the even if the nomenclature varies a bit, I think privacy is still very much at the core. It's just become this container uh, in in which a lot of other things now enter the conversation and and demand a different kind of focus from from policy teams like ours that are that are working on them to product teams who are, who are building against that that reality
1: now what's interesting to me about what you just said is like the way you describe the other sort of like uh, complementary areas of interest um, like if you're looking for a theme between like privacy competition civil rights fairness you know to me the themes that intersect all of those are trust safety um uh, control like uh, Equity, equity, right? Like these are the themes that I think like sort of connect the dots between all of these. And I could see a future where you know instead of having like a privacy department or a privacy specific function, it's broader that, and privacy is one component of it. But I don't know. I mean, I just I I don't think we can build like independent pillars for all of this and maintain sustainable businesses. And I mean that across industries, right? Like we can't have a hundred thousand people working on privacy trust. Like, separately. So, 500,000 people working on all this stuff at one company, that's not going to work. So, I, I just don't know. Andy, at a small shop, all of these themes come up at your place, for sure. And you guys don't have, you know, me and Andrew have a team of 20 people. Like, you don't have that. So, how do you tackle this, man? Like, how do you do it? Um, I, I think
0: we, we have fewer vectors of consideration, to be totally honest. Like we have fewer people. We have a smaller service. And Pedro, you've made the point a couple of times, which is totally, totally interesting and makes sense. Like if something doesn't work or harms even the tiniest slice of your user base, that's a massive number of people. And as a B2B solution, I don't have those same concerns. So B2C, B2B is a little bit different. Now we have a B2C component though. In, in the sense that a gift gets sent to a recipient and that recipient may be receiving a gift in a B2B context, but they're still a consumer. They're, they're, just they're a still person. a person. Yeah. And then I'm still going to process their data and I'm going to still uh, potentially, because they're interacting with my service, I'm the controller. So I then get into a different s- sort of value discussion with that with that end person. So. I do my best to put myself into their shoes. I'm receiving a gift. What is my expectation of what's going to happen to my data when I get a gift? Like if if a customer of Alice's sends a gift to a consumer, do they reasonably expect that Alice will process their data? And for what purpose? Yeah, they do. Do they reasonably expect that the end B2B sender of that gift will have some Activities and processing of their data. Yeah, I think they do. And do they know where to go to exercise rights if they're if they want to do that? I got to make sure that I can. Yes, but I think I don't have the ability and the luxury, nor maybe necessarily like the duty to do the some of the things that you all do, which is like talking deeply to the academic community and talking, you know, and understanding way more deeply, like cultural nuances of many different countries like it's a it's a different
1: scale but it's sort of a flavor of the same issue yeah andrew on the fairness tip and you and i have talked about this a lot um one of the hardest things i think there is one of the hardest components of thinking about fairness in the context of data use and platforms that have millions and billions of people interacting with them is like trying to decide what fairness is so you can create a threshold to measure against right like yeah I, you know i don't think we're very far along but i'm interested just in you and your personal kind of like in the just in the vast valley of your thoughts here how do we go about making the f- metric of fairness fair so i
2: think one of the really interesting things about fairness as a domain is a lot of the advocacy and a lot of sort of the external uh analysis and work happening on this really does get its roots in academia right this is where the academic research and academic uh, sort of conversations are, are leading the charge and to your point you know there's a there is a extensive and robust debate about definitions and, and metrics and, and and frameworks happening right now and I think that to put that into practice, is going to be a question for a lot of companies of, of principles and, and what they want you know what the what it is they want to see in terms of the impact of their products on the world especially the impact on you know potentially historically marginalized or underrepresented groups and if you look at again sort of the the outside conversation the academic conversation the stakeholder conversation a lot of that is squarely focused on those outcomes and those outputs so i think that As companies look at this question of fairness in the context of personalization and personalized services, um, it's going to be, it's going to largely key to, you know, that or it should key to that is, you know, what is the, what is the on the ground impact? What are the outcomes that you're striving to create for your customers, your community, Um, and, you know, how to measure that, how to understand that, that unto itself is a really difficult question because that may you know require different kinds of measurement than companies typically do different types of data than they may collect right there's a there's a whole sort of nesting set of issues here um and again you know this is lead, this is this is early stage kind of leading edge stuff so uh, there aren't a ton of frameworks or playbooks that that exist you know beyond uh Beyond certain domains and and for domains that that are more complicated and maybe have, you know, more data that flows into it and different kinds of experiences. These are the questions we're trying to work through right now.
1: Are we going to solve Like, what's your time horizon? Like, like, what do you, where do we, when do we have a framework? for us all to think through? Like how, you know, you said it's like sort of in the academic phase and still, and companies and academia and and civil society and regulators are all working to sort of coalesce around a mutual understanding of the rules. How long do you think that's going to take?
2: I mean, I don't have a great crystal ball on this, but I, I think, you know, looking, talking to people who are far smarter than me on the subject and looking at the state of the research and the state of where, you know, a lot of companies are focused right now, I, I think this is a, I think the next, let's just say, you know, two to five years are going to be really interesting. Uh, not necessarily in terms of having all the answers, but I think a lot of the the scaffolding is going to come together in that time. And I think that there's going to be certainly, you know, plenty of proposals or ideas that get thrown out there on the table for hopefully reaction. Because I think this is one place too where really and truly no one company or no one stakeholder group or anybody else regulator may has, has all the answers. Um, And, and I think that, you know, the the way we're going to make progress on this is going to be through collaboration, you know, multi-stakeholder dialogue, really uh, figuring out sort of what the open, open questions look like and how they may get answered. There's also two really interesting, um, you know, offline examples, right. When it comes to fairness, there, there's, Sort of analog examples from the world of of, of lending is a good example. Uh, insurance, other sort of industries that have dealt with these issues in different contexts over time, and I think there's a lot to be done to figure out how you know algorithmically driven services platforms like ours can learn from some of what those industries have already grappled with. Um, and but again, it's not necessarily an apple to apple thing. It's a you know, it's a piece of a bigger puzzle. And I think bringing that, that puzzle together is going to be, um, a a big lift and require a lot of, 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 investment from all the different folks I mentioned.
1: One of the great parts of watching you work and watching you work with, uh, with other partners of ours, like Roy Austin on the civil, who runs our civil rights team is like, like the inclusive approach to these dialogues. And Andy, you know, how important this is to me because I talk about it all the time, but I think like, at least here at Meadow, but I, I see other companies doing it too. And it's important, which is to have inclusive conversations about these things. Because the, we might come to some framework in two to five years, as Andrew mentioned, and that's possible. But making sure that that framework is durable and is also equitable and fair for the people who never have a seat in these rooms, um, uh, who might be most impacted by the decisions being made about how this is all going to work, um, is going to be really important. And, um, you know, Watching you, Andrew, and your team and, and other folks have these dialogue sessions with stakeholders who have the expertise and always have had it, but just have never been invited to the table has been like over the last couple of years, just something amazing for me to experience and watch. And I'm very grateful to you and Roy for being, the, you know, approaching it that way.
2: Yeah, it's been really rewarding. And I th- to be clear, Roy also falls squarely under that category I mentioned earlier of people smarter than me. Like that's uh, getting yeah, to work with well, Roy is a, is a huge privilege. And I learn, you know, a lot from him every true. time. Yeah. We work together, and but I think to your point too, Pedro. Like it goes back to something that you know I really learned from Peter Cullen and Brendan Lynch at Microsoft, which is just the power of of sitting down with folks and and, and you know having a a you know a, a big table um, for folks to, to to have a dialogue, and even when there's disagreement or misalignment, you know, bringing bringing folks together to hash it out and, and you know, the power of, of, of presence and, and, and inviting people into that conversation and making that, you know, widening that aperture. Um, that's something that I, I push my team on. And I think, you know, again, it's, it's the only way that we're going to make the kind of progress that I think we all want to make on these really difficult, sometimes seemingly intractable issues.
0: That's really yeah, true. And,
1: and I think, yeah, and just to add, to like, put one more underline on that, like, Symbolic involvement is not that meaningful to me, right? Like inviting somebody just so that they're there means nothing, Um, but actionable engagement, right? Like actually listening, creating uh, results based on the feedback, demonstrating the change. This is the type of work that's gonna not just help Meta succeed, but like just help tech, tech companies rebuild trust with the world, right? Like if you just get away from like, what's the rule we have to comply with and what's the law that just got passed? and just try to have a better relationship with our users and um and with the public through transparent dialogue through um and and um and engagement you know this is how all sorts of industries come back from from sort of like dark phases um and i'm i'm interested to be sort of have a front seat to watching this all happen um from our little perch here uh, Andy, we should think uh, we should listen.
0: close with an 80s question i think cuz this is an 80s theme i got a good 80s question podcast. for you right here yeah. I got a great one. Watch yeah. this.
1: Watch this. Andrew, Andrew's a big truck and car guy like me, right? Big truck and car guy. Um, Andrew, favorite big truck of the 1980s?
2: I mean, it has to be, for me, both n- nostalgia-wise and just, you know, for many other reasons, the OG Chevy Suburban, right? Back when that <laughs> thing was like a, you know was an actual tank, right? It had like five rows before five rows were cool. My aunt had one. And every time we visited her in California, she'd pick us up from the airport. I remember the the like, you know, the diesel engine idling, right? And probably just, you know, <laughs> spewing out god disintegrating knows the asphalt. <laughs> yeah. And, and and just I mean, the thing was just an I mean, like, of course, like SUVs now have become comically large. That it all started there, like the, the original, yeah. like the original suburban. That's it, man. That's it.
1: It's hard to beat that truck, to be honest. I can see it in my head. What a fucking gigantic banana boat that thing was. Yeah, and you got <laughs> some you had like interiors
2: did you, did you- too. You get the like orange carpet <laughs> that was like. Covered the entire uh, 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 like or, like like just orange velvet and like or it just the it orange just,
1: carpet headliner <laughs> exactly
2: yeah and like paired with like a bright white or some other you know it's like bright blue exterior like that that that's a I mean if those aren't the glory days of automotive you know automotive design I don't know what is I think
0: of two things when I think of trucks in the eighties I think of uh the alternative timeline in back to the future when he like fixes the future and then comes oh. back and he's got this incredibly fancy the like Toyota, it was like Toyota a a toy or something yeah. truck where he's going to take his girlfriend yeah. on a camping trip in the truck. And it's, it's lifted, just like the yeah. greatest day of his life, you know, that. And then also the old Stallone arm wrestling movie where he's a truck driver. And he goes around wrestling, arm wrestling people along his way. <laughs> and he just, he he, he wears a, a trucker hat, of course. And when he's in an arm wrestling match and he's he's losing and he really needs that extra, like, lift, he turns his hat backwards. And then he just does this crazy move like this and, you know, wins it.
1: <laughs> Dude, I, I, I'm getting... Images of the Sylvester Stallone arm wrestling movie and the fact that the 80s was somebody who was doing a lot of cocaine when they walked into a studio and was like, I got an idea for a movie. We're going to have Sylvester Stallone be a truck driver who goes around the country arm wrestling. Like, this is it, bro. With, with, is uh, it. What could go wrong? He's, he's, what could, what, How could that fail, right? How could that fail? He has to,
0: he has to get his uh, develop a relationship with his estranged 10-year-old son, too. That's oh, the, okay. So it's a father-daughter,
1: yeah. oh, excuse me, father-son bonding movie. I understand. Right. And <laughs> understand. You know, he
0: teaches the kid how to turn his hat backwards and arm wrestle. <laughs>
1: well, I- yeah. I'll stick, I-, I know you went Toyota, Andy. I'll stick with Chevy. Um, like, I guess I, I'm thinking like Chevy Silverados of the 1980s were, were oh, yeah. really cool. You know, actually, you know what? I'm gonna take it all back. You remember mini trucks when like, isuzu dropped a mini truck toyota ha- i don't remember what these trucks were called but like mitsubishi had a mini truck mini truck toyota had a mini truck the ford ranger obviously was out there like all these little trucks just had like a 15 year run and now nobody makes them no- nobody makes these fucking things because they were dangerous they were worthless they couldn't tow anything you could put anything in the back of that thing that weighed more than 50 pounds they didn't have rear seats i don't even think they had seat belts but Dan, they were cool. They and you barely had them into lowriders, and I, and I because
2: my dad, my dad loved these trucks, right? So he, yeah, he uh, had. I remember growing up a Mazda B twenty two hundred, which <laughs> was the like Mazda light duty pickup truck. And I remember driving that thing, <laughs> driving around with him in Seattle, on that on steep hills, and it was a manual, obviously. <laughs> and we would just those wheels would in the back would just spin right on on you know wet steep hills. My hopes
1: and prayers. Yeah, with you.
2: and one time when I was little, he. Uh, um, it, like a snowstorm came through Seattle. Right. And I was at school and he came to pick me up at school in that truck. And I went to school on top of a big hill and I don't know how we made it <laughs> home in one piece. That was, uh, I, I remember every moment of that drive. Like it was, uh, it was yesterday heroin, Were These but, things uh, like front,
1: these things are like awesome. front wheel drive. like what, what were these things? I, I, I mean, these, these are bad trucks, man. If you want, if you want to, if you, if I, this is what I'll say to everybody listening right now. When you get off this podcast, if you're not gonna listen to another episode, I understand. Google Mini Truck and Magazine. <laughs> and just look at the images from the eighties of these mini truck low riders sitting on triple gold Daytons um uh and are impossible to drive or see. But they were cool, man. Anyway This is a this Andrew, is a
0: great, great conversation. Thanks.
1: Yeah, Andrew, thanks for hanging out with us, man. I know this is uh this is a lot of hours with me today, but I appreciate it, bro. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no my pleasure this has been this has been a lot of fun uh it was a really awesome conversation and i i'm honored to be uh to be on on the on the guest roster of this illustrious podcast so
0: uh, shout it. out to that professor shout out to that professor yeah my, shout out to your professor. And, all, yeah. and all and all teachers that actually uh, all teachers that actually like give That's so it? much give so much and yeah. are the most underpaid profession and just like I have so much respect for teachers, especially those that influence people, you know, years and years and years after they're gone. What
1: was his name, Bob? Bob Churchill. Churchill. Shout Bob out Churchill. to Bob Churchill, the map maker, man. What a legend. Right. Thanks, Andrew. My pleasure. Thank you, guys.
0: Our podcast is presented by Tech GC. Click on the link below if you want to become a member.